McGowan sitting at 15 Perry Street, mentors from military coming at you, and um, got a really special guest. And first off, I just want to say, John, how much I appreciate you coming in on the show and driving all this way from North Carolina. And your, okay. your microphone has fallen. And my microphone fell. Not yeah. a good way to start, is yeah. it? <laughs> the only problem is with sticking it out that far on the boom is that it ends up getting so much weight because it's a heavy microphone. Yeah. And so uh, you might find that happens uh, a few times. And if so, just maybe we'll, we'll okay. pull it back that direction. But anyway, John, thank you for coming in. And I know that you, know, you started off in Ohio in uh, Cleveland. That's where you were born, right? Suburb of Cleveland, that's right. Okay, so my wife is from Ohio, but she's from the... The eastern side over there, Youngstown, okay. Newcastle, Pennsylvania area, and such, and not that far away. So, um, anyway, they end up being, I think, Cleveland fans, um, uh, Pittsburgh, you know, because they're close to that as well. So I'm I, taking oh, it. No, wait, wait, wait. They're Cleveland fan and Pittsburgh. So it's split. Okay, yeah, because you can't. You have to choose one. You can't yeah. do both. I'm just saying. No, 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 no absolutely. So there are some Cleveland. Uh, I should have specified the better. There are <laughs> Cleveland Browns fans and everything, and then there are Pittsburgh Steelers fans, and yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so I'm taking it. You grew up in a Cleveland fan, and still are. Or? I did. Yeah, oh. I'm a real fan uh, through okay. all their good years, all two of them, and all their bad years. So I'm, <laughs> I'm still a Browns fan. Yeah, and that's... the Indians now renamed. Oh, the yeah. Guardians. So, you know, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't keep up with all these changes and stuff that were occurring, and and uh, don't follow that sport that much, other than the Braves. Obviously, I follow the Braves, but I didn't, I didn't keep up with all the different name changes. I should say within baseball that occurred. Football, you know, I saw those, but yeah, it, it happens. I don't know why the Braves haven't changed yet. Probably uh, because they uh, have intestinal fortitude. I guess. I, uh, I think it's um, they're. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, yeah, they did kind of stand their ground, but I think they also received some letters and stuff like that that said they had no issue with it, mm-hmm. and you know they were able to fight it off. Who knows? You know. Who knows? I, yeah. yeah. They still do the tomahawk chop and everything that I think started with Deion Sanders at Florida State, and he ended up carrying it to uh, the Atlanta Braves when he played there. I think that's how that came across. You know, the oh, yeah, well, I know yeah, the yeah. Chop. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think he t- he brought that with him, and uh, yeah. Um, so uh, having been a um, University of Florida fan. That didn't. I can't sit in a Braves game and do that. I just, you know, <laughs> because Florida State does it. You know, yeah. I, I can't do it. Um, at any rate, you ended up um, being raised in Maple Heights. So where is that in, in relation to Cleveland? It's a, a suburb of southeast. It's southeast of Cleveland. So the border between Maple Heights. There's another suburb in between. You're right there. In Cleveland, 15-minute drive. Oh, okay. So it's sort of like here where you're about, you know, 20 minutes away, 30 yeah, minutes away. Exactly. And, and you could enjoy all the beautiful beauty of it, but you can also live out in the country. That's, well, yeah, we weren't out in the country. I guess maybe when my dad first bought the house was out in the country. But uh, when I grew up, it wasn't in the country. It was your typical 1950s, 60s suburb. Uh, minus the white picket fences because nobody in my neighborhood could afford a white picket fence. <laughs> So, like, really, the, the like uh, your family, did he serve in the World War II or anything? Or? No, he didn't. Uh, he actually worked in a, a steel factory, a steel castings factory, and the only reason, uh, he was war essential, so they were making parts for tanks, they were making parts for Jeeps and things like that. Yeah. I had several uncles who all did serve in World War II then. Wow. Uh, ever sat down with them and get... You know stories. Or well, back when I was younger, uh, all of them have passed since then. But yeah, they, uh, that was one of my motivations to go serve in the military. Actually, yeah. Uh, my uncle Roland, he served in uh, the European theater, 
And he wasn't on the front lines. He was actually like a tank retriever kind of guy who would take blown up things from the battlefield and take it back to the rear echelon maintenance. But um, he got close enough to the action and far enough from the action that it just the stories uh, kind of motivated, motivated me to want to be in the Army. Yeah, and like at what age? Like you know, did it start you know, really resonating? Well, I was probably in about eighth grade. Yeah, that's about when it hit me, too. That's why I was uh, wondering, because I had, well, I had the Army posters, Marine Corps posters, and stuff like that. So just curious when it started really influencing About eighth grade. And before yeah. that, I would, I would do all the little models. I guess kids don't do that anymore, sure. where you paint them and glue them. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we didn't play Navy. We, we played Army. No one in the world has ever played Navy. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but uh, so why the, the Academy then? So it was it that you decided that you wanted to go to like the premier route? Or, obviously, you must have had really good grades and stuff in high school. Well, for, I did do pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't like top of the class or anything, but I, I had good grades. But yeah. I ran track and I was an Eagle Scout and active in things. And um, I graduated from high school back in 72. And if you recall your history, for most of the people listening, they may not have been born then. But that period of time in the country, what was going on was the war in Vietnam was winding down. Military service was not really highly viewed by a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. But in the area I grew up, all the, the kids in my neighborhood, all their dads worked in the steel mills, the Ford assembly plant, the GM plant, the sure. Ford engine plant, all that kind of thing. So there was this real feeling of nation mm -hmm. and um, I, I, it got in my head somehow that uh, I guess through a guidance council it's like if you want to go in the army I want you to go to West Point you got the grades to do it and it's like okay I looked into it and set my mind on it in eighth grade and um, worked towards that goal and I ended up getting there yeah eighth grade so yeah. so when you said you started thinking about it eighth grade you literally started thinking about the academy at eighth grade not just yeah, going into the service grade. yeah I did so you had an opportunity to really understand the difficulty and the challenge of getting in, you know, having to go through and get a you know, congressional Correct. support, uh, all of that. Yeah. Well, I, it's kind of like a lot of things in life. If you knew how tough it was going to be when you start, you probably wouldn't do it. So, so, <laughs> yeah. So I really didn't understand that as an eighth oh, and ninth grader. Okay. Just like uh, I want to go there, got to get a congressman. Do I didn't know any congressman. I mean, yeah. I, you know, yeah. We didn't. My family didn't grow up in those kind of neighborhoods, um, but. Guidance counselor helped a lot, yeah. um, and that's really what helped me organize all that and get myself prepared to get in. When you went to the um, academy, again, you were talking about post or around Vietnam, you know, mm -hmm. winding down and everything. I think it was 72, wasn't it, when the hostages started coming home, uh, POWs and stuff? I, I believe it was in 72, 73. 73, yeah, somewhere yeah. in that time frame they came off the plane. I still remember that, um, watching that as a, as a child on the TV and stuff when they... Um, they came and how profound that was. But, um, you know, how was it then you going to the academy? What was the kind of the, you know, you mentioned about the, the U.S. mindset and stuff at this time frame. But, I mean, you're going to a military academy where you're going to be learning about warfare and, you know, those types of things. So what was that environment at that time frame? Uh, two stories diametrically opposed. In my high school graduation, they announced if you're going to college, where you're going to college, and if you weren't, what you're going to do in life. They announced my name as I was walking across the stage and going to the United States Military Academy at West Point. I received a standing ovation from the audience. Wow. The only one who did. And it, it was pretty impressive at that young age that people are clapping for me. Yeah. Fast forward to six months into West Point, I go home in uniform 
from West Point, New York, got on a plane at LaGuardia, flew, was supposed to fly into Cleveland. Um, the middle of winter, Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. And I wound up in Detroit and um, had to wait for another flight to Cleveland. Hanging around there, cadet uniform, very proud of it. You know, most people kind of looking at you. One woman actually came up to me and said, uh, what are you dressed for? I said, well, I go to the United States military camp at West Point very proudly. And she actually spit on me. No way. Way. And she said, well, how can you even think of joining the Army shooting women and babies? You're a horrible person. And I, I was like 17. You know, so, so I go from a standing ovation at my high school graduation to literally a woman spitting on me because I'm wearing a uniform in the Detroit airport. Um, it, 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 it was a weird time in the country. Yeah. And really, it didn't level out. Um, until really the Reagan years, mm -hmm. and even after that, the whole 70s was just pretty much a, uh, I'll try and not use too many infantry terms, but it was kind of a mess, <laughs> you know, in terms yeah. of, of the public not valuing service, yeah. which is completely different than today. Yeah. Well, and I was in the same boat. I joined um, on the late entry program in 79 and, and then came in the service in 80. And I can, I, I lived around, I mean, the panhandle of Florida, you've got everything from Whitingfield, Pensacola, right. NAS, Tyndall Air Force Base, Herbert Field. I mean, a lot of military that's around there. So I was in a bit of a bubble. Um, I didn't experience what you experienced. Instead, it was very much everybody who was graduating high school. It was kind of expected that you would be going into the military because you're your family more than likely is somehow connected to one of these installations right. around there. And, uh, but I can very much relate to the feeling, that vibe that was still around that you would see in the news or whatever the case may be, even though you were in your bubble, you know, we only had three channels and news only appeared <laughs> a couple of times a night, different than what it is today. But still, when you did watch it, you could get a sense of what's going on in, in the world. And it was a very weird time. It was a very weird time, very yeah. weird. And that lasted really into the 80s. Uh, I got to Fort Hood, Texas in 81. And even at that point in time, the directives were, you can only stop on the way home if you lived off post, and I did, uh, to get gas in uniform. Otherwise, uh, you're not to stop at a restaurant. You're not to go anywhere. Uh, hair was longer. It wasn't the high and tights. Mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was just a, a, an interesting time. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but uh, service is service, and people, uh, young men and women, enter the service for different reasons. Yeah. And I, I think the one thing they really learn in there is love of country, and that what the military does is incredibly important for us for our survival as a nation. Yeah, and you know when you think about uh, what is it, less than one percent of the population ends up actually going to serve on active duty at any given time. Part of that's because of the, you know, mandate as far as how si the size of our military force, but right. a lot of it has to do too with there is not very many people that really have that really sense of pride and love to go and serve their country in that way. Well, yeah, I, I had a uh, tour at headquarters recruiting command, and there's this acronym they use their teams, mm -hmm. and those are the basic buying motives, if you will. I remember this. That was a recruiter, so oh, I remember that. Know, yeah, oh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Training, education, adventure, money, money, and service to country. That's right. So when were you a recruiter? Uh, from 85, uh, let's see, 85 to 90? I okay. think it was, yeah. So I was at the recruiting command from, I think it was 91 to 90. 
1983. Okay, I was there yeah. from uh, General Ono uh, time period. Okay. Yeah, Mission Box. Yeah, no, I was there with General Thurman. Okay. Um, no, not Thurman, because he was before oh, God. General Wheeler. Okay, yeah. yeah. I left there in 90, thank God, and okay. uh, went to <laughs> Fort Benning, um, went into an in-service recruiting program and stuff. So okay. very, very different. But um, you went into uh, West Point, and did you choose where you wanted to go in terms of your MOS? Did you did oh, you I pick? did, yeah. yeah. And the way it works at the West Point graduating class, you pick your branch first, and it was based on your order of merit. So the number okay. one person uh, in the class to the last graduating person in the class, and it's a combination of academic skills plus military proficiency. Mm-hmm. So uh, I always wanted to be an infantryman. Um, a lot of people on top of the class want to be engineers and all these other things. I want to be in the infantry. Uh, I think the last guy in the class also selected infantry. Or I was selected for him, but I was infantry by choice. <laughs> so did you end up going to like Airborne or Ranger or anything like while uh, at the academy? Um, actually, I went to Airborne School while at the academy, but I busted up my knee, so I didn't finish there. And after graduation, that was the first school I went to down at Benning. Then the uh, officer's basic course, and then ranger school. Okay, guys, I remember I went through airborne school in the summertime, and there were a bunch of you know West Pointers and Navy guys. That seemed to be where you got the influx of all kinds of different hodgepodge kind of situations. You know, maybe different than some of the other uh, classes throughout the the year. So that's why I was curious. And of course, you, you see when Army plays Navy and it's on national television, some of the guys have the wings, you know. Right, right. And um, so I was just curious if that was something that you did. Busted out your knee, huh? How did that yeah, happen? What week? It was uh, ground week or. No, it was the second week. Okay. Uh, tower week. Uh, tower, yeah. Because you know how you run in formation? Mm, oh, yeah, Fridays uh, were yeah, big. Yeah, and there was this track there, and they yep. weren't real good about maintaining the edge of the track with where the track was. Mm. So I was at the back of the formation on this side, and we're swinging around, and the guy next to me accidentally pushes me, so step on the edge of the track, which there's a difference between there and where the dirt was by about six inches, twisted my knee, and it's... This wasn't pretty. Yeah. So, so they didn't hold you over, though? You end up having, uh, it, it was bad enough to. It wasn't hold over a bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Yeah. But I went back and got my wings. So that's. So you went there. So after the academy, um, you selected infantry. You ended up going to Benning to go through the basic course right. and everything. Did you go to Airborne after, immediately after basic? Or I, did no, you I before? Went first. Okay. Uh, Is that unique? That, 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 that no, time frame really. to do it before? Okay. Not really. That, for officers, they. Yeah. Go in infantry. Country. I mean, they want everybody to be airborne ranger if you can be, or if yeah. you want to be. And uh, any infantrymen out there know that you. <laughs> I guess you get a little more credit as a lieutenant. Whatever credit a lieutenant gets, if you are airborne ranger. Oh so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's what is it? The they say now you either have a tab or you have a story. <laughs> I don't think I've heard that you one. Haven't, you haven't heard that one? No, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of the saying when it comes to officers. Yeah. So some guys come on the show and they go, so I have a story. Uh, and they tell the story, and uh, so it's quite interesting. Um, during this time frame, so, okay, so we're, we're talking airborne, ranger, basic, um, officer, you're being trained by Vietnam vets for the most part. Right. Because when I came in, even much later, it was still the same thing. You know, it was, you know, the remaining Vietnam vets that were finishing their career, the mindset, the way they trained and everything else was, you know, very different. It was, it was very much like, a, um, especially if you were in combat arms, it was uh-huh. very much a, um, you know, we got to make your mindset right, that you understand that mistakes matter. 
you know, type yeah, of thing. Yeah, it wasn't these, uh, one of these cards they used to do, or maybe they'll still do it, basic training. After that period of time, stress cards. Stress cards, yes, yeah, where you the, put the, your finger on there like a mood ring type yeah, of thing. Yeah, some kind of crazy yeah. stuff. I, I mean, there was no stress cards back then. It was like <laughs> no. you were either going to be strong yeah. or you're going to be gone. Yeah. Uh, one of the two. You couldn't stress out or any of that stuff. So, yeah, it, it, it was different in the transition from a, a wartime army to a peacetime army. And, of course, I didn't serve in Vietnam because I was too young to do that. But you're right. A lot of these veterans, officers, and NCOs, uh, both, uh, it was a different way of thinking about things. It was always on uh, yep. until it came Friday night at the NCAA club and the officer club. <laughs> then sure. it was massive amounts of alcohol. So. Right. Yeah, it was very different. And But I learned from some of the best at that time frame. And, I mean, I've said it um, multiple times on the podcast that there was somebody that made a major impression on my life that was uh, an E7 at the time frame, my platoon sergeant, who was a Vietnam vet, and um, – you know, this, the he didn't talk much about it. He didn't have to, but right. the way he the, he carried himself, the you know the way he supported his troops, he was hard, but he was fair. All right. Those, all of those things, and just really stuck with me. Um, how he took me underneath his wing at that time frame as well. And this is a some snotty nosed kid that was still trying to figure out if I was going to serve a full four years on that enlistment or if I was going to get out because it's just what I was cut out to do. But you know, um, you know, being just being real, and and this is a guy that you know was all about trying to take care of uh, his people um, and get them prepared for whatever may come. Because during that time frame, people may you know really knock on the Cold War um, time period and such. But we were talking about this off air. We were training for something that we still didn't know what was going to happen, and there was a big force out there, Russia, mm-hmm. China. It's still out there today, and those were our threats and major threats at that time frame. They absolutely were. I mean, yeah. it's and, and to your point about NCOs training you, uh, a lot of officers don't like to admit this, but as a second lieutenant, uh, as a retiree now, I'll admit it, you have to have good NCOs training lieutenants when they come out to, to their first unit. Yeah. Because you learn from them and the habits they have and the things they say and what they do. Um, I had great NCOs, uh, Sergeant First Class Pagalina and Sergeant First Class Hurd, um, Staff Sergeant Joyle. I mean, I still remember these guys' wow. names, and it's been a day or two. Yeah. Uh, but they were they were good. They were professional. Uh, in today's Army, I'm not sure that they would be allowed to serve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I've been in retired a few years, but it, it's just that, that gruffness. Yeah. They've been there seen it, got the T-shirt, and they're not going to take anything because they were training people to go to combat. Yep. And, and you can't have weakness, and you can't have – you just can't be weak. You have to be strong. Uh, I learned that from them, and uh, it, it helped me in my career. And I've yeah. passed that along in whatever way I have to uh, soldiers and NCOs and officers myself. When I rewind back, I mean, I know each of us have a story, and we think it was hard when we went through, you know, basic training or whatever, but there is a very different time frame then that when when I at least went through basic training, and you went well ahead of me, the NCOs that were in basic training, um, there were things that, that, that were done that would never stand today, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's correct. And, um, you know, again, at that time frame, you know, it was about trying to build the best soldier. And I came in in that time frame right around where it was uh, the be all you can be, you know, stuff started coming right, out, right. you know, a few years later and such. But it was an all volunteer. They were really getting proud of becoming 
the all-volunteer army. And back then, you know, you had regular army or you had, you know, draftees. So it was really important that you stated you were, no, no, I'm regular army. Because regular army meant, you know, no, I wasn't a draftee, you know, a type of thing. So today, guys don't even know what that means. You know, they're not regular army. It's just your army. You know, your active duty type of thing. But there were also, it was very important because you wanted to understand who was forced to come in versus somebody who volunteered to walk in the door. And they wanted that differentiator, you know. And it is important, too. I mean, look at the the force since the mid-'80s when basically most of the draftees were no longer privates. If anyone were left around, they were, you know, NCOs uh, or officers. But they, you know, today's Army is just amazing. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. Um, And and we fight different warfare now than we did in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. It's more technological, which... You know, I say that to some people who don't understand that. It, it's not that you don't charge up the hill with your bayonet fixed upon occasion uh, or, or you don't do hand-to-hand combat. You have to be ready to do it. Right. But you, you have to know how all the battlefield systems fit together. You have to maintain your equipment, the electronics. Everybody has a role to play, and it's much more technical. I mean, I served in a couple of Bradley units, and um, I was actually in the 1st T&E Battalion in the Army at Fort Hood, Texas, in the old 2nd Armored Division. Okay. We turned in our 113s, were basically big aluminum shoeboxes with tracks, to Bradley's, which was... Oh, it, you went through transition. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I went through... Uh, it was great. I went through the uh, the M1 transition. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I remember this time frame, but I remember us having the M1s before um, you guys got the Bradley's. And so, you know, 113 is trying to keep up. Yeah. And, oh, it was horrible. And tow, oh, yeah. tow tracks trying to keep yeah. up with us and everything. Yeah, you couldn't do yeah, it. You couldn't do it. I was yeah. Fort Hood at that time. Okay. Um, you must have been there. Anyway, <laughs> say like we're, we're tracking here. That's, yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah. But, yeah, but it, it's um, – and so it was a different army, different yeah. armies upon occasion need different skill sets and different leadership techniques. And uh, nothing back then was bad or good. It was what it was to right. be the most effective fighting force we had. Just like today, if we don't do things we did back in the 70s, that's okay because we do what we have to do to be the most effective fighting force today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you kind of put it that way because we're certainly not reminiscing to say that this military today is not the same. It's just that it was a different world, and I think it it helps in understanding, too, what we're going to be probably talking a little bit about later on. And so you ended up going um, from West Point, going through your initial training, getting the, the jump wings, the tab, and everything else. What was your first assignment then? Uh, 25th Infantry Division, Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. Ah, good. Uh, what, did you get rock fever there? Or I never I got rock fever. fever. I was a single guy. I never got rock fever. Yeah. Um, it was a great unit yeah. to be. Uh, very I mean, proud unit, too. Very proud unit. Yeah. Uh, there were two brigades there at the time. Um, I, I loved the training. Yeah. I, I loved the hiking. The, the I, I hiked in addition. I'm not talking about Army hiking. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're talking uh, civilian hiking. I'm just talking yeah. civilian hiking. Yeah, yeah. I got into scuba diving. Oh, uh, nice. As soon as I got enough rank, I moved off post, lived down in Honolulu. Single guy in Hawaii. What's not to like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you go through the, any of the jungle training or anything at that time? No, period, they or? weren't really sending people to jungle training at the okay. time. We had a, a Recondo school there. Mainly oh, I, do hear, for, I did hear that. Uh, for scout platoons. And okay. I never had a scout platoon, so I didn't do any of that. You didn't get a chance to do any of that then? Oh, man, that's oh. a bummer. Because uh, I, I, I would have loved to have heard that time period versus now. You know, and yeah, now I, that I, mean, I don't, I, I can't compare that, but I can tell you one thing that 
going to Korea on a brigade level deployment after being two years at Schofield Barracks, it's very cold in February in Korea. <laughs> I can tell you that. So is that what happened? You ended oh, up yeah. The second year there, we, it was the first brigade size deployment from the yeah. 25th to Korea. Uh, it was an Operation Team Spirit is what it was back then. Okay. And uh, they issued us all the cold weather gear, the Mickey Mouse boots and the parkas and all that stuff. Yeah. There wasn't a minute that I was there that I wasn't freezing. Yeah. It was cold. Well, that's how I felt about Germany. I think I still have a minor set of frostbite on my feet. You know, it turns 50 <laughs> degrees or 55 degrees. My yeah. my feet turned to ice and such. But, yeah, the equipment back then was nowhere near no, what it is uh, today. No, it really wasn't. Yeah, it they was. give you a wool uh, shirt and everything that uh, you'd wear, and that thing was worthless. Uh, um, particularly if it got wet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, the, and the cotton jacket. What were you yeah. we thinking, you know? Uh, I don't know. It was uh, state-of-the-art stuff at the time. <laughs> it was. And there it was. And your parka. Uh, any rate, um, so after uh, your good times in Hawaii, where did they end up sending you after that? Went back to Fort Bang for the advanced course. Okay. And uh, I knew that the Bradleys were coming, and I knew that I was going to go to Fort Hood, Texas. I was trying to get in a second armor division at the time. Mm -hmm. Two divisions at Fort Hood was at the time was second armor division, and then uh, first cav. So I volunteered to go to Battalion Motor Officer School at Fort Knox, Kentucky. That's a hmm. six eight week course. Yeah which every infantry officer who's been light or airborne wants nothing to do with. Yeah, I was going to say, well, it's kind of interesting because that's good. Was this, um, wait, is this around the mechanized time frame? Yeah, this was um, 80, 81. Okay. Because so, okay. Bradleys, I was there, I got there in 81, and we were issued the Bradleys in 82, I believe. Okay. We're, like I said, we were the first T&E battalion to get them. So I volunteered to go to motor officer school. Question, people questioned my intelligence and my sanity. I said, no, I want to do this. So I went there and then got transferred to Fort Hood. Now, you said you went to Knox It was only 81? six weeks. I, I believe it was... Oh, man. Um, yeah. The reason not, why I ask is really I was at Disney right? Barracks there at Knox in 1980. That's why I'm asking to see if I we were... I think it was more like 81. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, 80, 81. Oh, we might have been there. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at my ORB. Yeah, those were not so. good times. That's when I was going through yeah. OSIT and everything out there at uh, Disney Barracks. And, uh, yeah, that was... <laughs> Yeah, Knox, I just remember the hills, all the uh, ruck marches and stuff through those hills. Uh, what uh, was it? Uh, gosh, Heartbreak Hill. I don't know. They had all kinds of weird names and stuff. I can't remember. I'm sure somebody will end up uh, uh, reminding me of them. It's probably stationed there, has been stationed there. But that was the home of the armor back in the day. It was. You know, now we've got the whole mechanized thing down in uh, Fort Benning that's, you know, yeah, combined. Combined Yeah. Combined Armstein. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Because oh. you're you're an old infantry guy, so uh, I'm an armor guy, and I'm just kind of curious. Uh, like I understand combined arms completely because yeah. that's you have to fight together, but um, it's probably for the best. But mm -hmm. That's a very political way of stating well, that, John. It probably is, but I'm a politician. But uh, you know, sometimes you can look to the past, yeah, and and think it was a little bit rosier than it really was. Right, right, and and that's. Kind of right now because the home of the infantry, you know, the camaraderie you have is all the infantry people, officers, NCOs enlisted. You know, yeah. that, that's a big deal. Now it's combined arms center. Well, what's combined arms rank look like? Yeah. I, I mean, what, what's yeah. the what's the brass Lapel, look like? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. There's no combined arms. Yeah. So it's you know you, you lose a little, but you gain a little bit. Um, I think it's probably helped in uh, both branches understanding, you know, how to operate better. Yeah, and for those reasons, I'm all for it because I think, you know, combined arms, thinking of just combat arms in general, 
getting more of that blend. And there was always this love-hate relationship between either cav and mech and, uh, and armor or whatever you want to call it, and infantry. It was, you know, we knew we needed one another, but we didn't necessarily always love one another right. uh, type of thing. And, and so now it kind of brought the two entities together and certainly made them try to, you know, be happy. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if anybody's listening that can uh, validate that thought or not. If well, they're happy, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I would. I'd love to hear more about you know the thought process of how they're living it today, and if they could rewind and go backwards in time, would they separate the two? Uh, you know, and Armor was really proud of Knox being the home of Armor, oh, yeah. you know, type yeah. of thing, and Benning was the home of the infantry. And, and now you don't have those homes of any longer. And, and it's kind of sad because I think across the country, just kind of going down a different rabbit hole, we're st- we saw so much drawdown that happened throughout the country over the last, say, 30 years in which so many great installations have closed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of sad because, you know, in our lifetime, we got a chance to see so many of these great places. And uh, you don't always get a chance to experience that today. Thankfully, Hawaii's still there. 25th ID uh, is still there. still there. Yeah. Fort Hood's still there. 2nd Armored Division, they furled their flag. Uh, Fort Polk's still there, too. I've been there. Were you at Polk? I was at Polk in the 5th Mech. Oh, my gosh, when? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. We're just, like, totally going uh, off yeah, here. we're going off the I was, in the I was in 70th Armored there. Uh, no. Yeah, 2nd Brigade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway, we're going to edit. Uh, who? Early what? 80s. Yeah, yeah, early 80s? Yeah. Okay, I was there in the uh, early 90s. I don't know. I think, I don't yeah. even know if those uh, units. Th- I, I, well, I don't know if they exist. I know yeah, they're not they Polk because yeah. the 5th Mech um, deactivated and went over to Fort Hood. Yeah. And that was in right before I left. So I went through, uh, that was my really int- main entry point within the Army and uh, ended up going through at that time frame instead of it being, it used to be PODC mm-hmm. or PNOC and non-commissioned, officer, uh, non-commissioned officers who were going through or when com- uh, combat arms went to PNOC and BNOC. Mm-hmm. I remember that. PNOC, BNOC, ANOC. And then the other guys went to non-combat arms, went to PODC and then they'd Go to uh, BNOC and ANOC. So, and stuff so that was there. your first tour, real tour in the Army? Yeah, yeah. and then uh, And PNOC. you stayed into retirement after experiencing Fort Right, Polk. right. I mean. Wow, that's very, very <laughs> tough guy. I, I, I actually uh, lived in a trailer park right out the front gate. Uh, there off in the left uh, and stuff. Yeah, Diseaseville, Sleesville. <laughs> used to have all kinds of strange names back then. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know what the hell happened. Uh, I ended up staying in after that. I ended up going to, even after that to 11th ACR in Fulda uh, at the Gap. And uh it was funny because um, that E7 that I was talking about, he shared a story, and he's like, uh, listen, you know, I, I'm going to get you all hooked up and everything. You're going to go over to Germany. We're going to put you uh, – I've made some phone calls. They're going to put you in the 1st and the 33rd over there, I think is what it was. And um, and he's like, you know, you, one thing you do when you get over there into Frankfurt um, – do not go to the 11th ACR. And I go, what, what's, what's wrong with the 11th ACR? He goes, a board of cab. And I go, I'm not, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. You know? And he goes, uh, yeah, he goes, well, they've guarded the East West German border. You know, there's three units, yada, yada, yada. And he tells me all this story. So I land in Frankfurt and forgive me for those people who've heard this story, but I land in Frankfurt and I'm sitting there. I'm a, you know, fresh buck sergeant, you know, really um, just made it out of Polk. And this is my first mm-hmm. assignment afterwards. And um, the specialist is sitting there at the desk at uh, 30th AG or whatever it is, whatever AG it is. And he gives me my uh, orders and says the bus is out front. I look at it and I go, there must be a mistake. You know, there's got to be a mistake. He goes, there's no mistake. You you can read the orders right there. And I go, no, I'm saying there must be a mistake because somebody's, you know, 
called and made a hookup, I'm supposed to be going to first and 33rd. And I said, well, who's your NCO, uh, NCOIC here? So brings over the staff sergeant. He uh, he looks at the orders. He goes, uh, what's the problem, Sergeant? And I go, uh, I think those orders are wrong. He goes, no, I'm reading them. They look pretty right to me. <laughs> and uh, uh, go get on the bus. You know, of course, he outranked me. So I had to go get uh, on the bus. And uh, I remember my first 24 hours, uh, I came outside. Um, somebody beat on my door. And uh, it was first formation and stuff. And it was dark outside. I thought I was going to get a chance to sleep in and go to, uh, you know, check in and stuff for the first couple of days, get acclimated and the whole bit. And uh, there's this guy standing on the other side of the door when I opened it up. And he's like, uh, you got a T-shirt? You got any of boots? You got, um, you know, bottoms and stuff? And I go, mm -hmm. yeah. And he goes, put them on. You got 15 minutes to get out front. I go, but I, I'm supposed to be uh, in process, and I don't give a crap. Get get on your gear, meet out front. As soon as I walk out the door, new me, new me, the whole thing. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm standing there in formation. A guy caught me with my, um, you know, unbloused or whatever on my, I mean, a button done, done, and everything. So I'm knocking out push-ups, the whole thing. And and I go, hey, where, where are we running? And they go, hey, you see that uh, see that church over there? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, we're going to run to that church up there. And I go, oh, all right. And I look back, and it's probably like, you know, a mile and a half. Mm -hmm. I could see. And he goes, uh, yeah, so then we're going to run over here to the uh, the airport and stuff that's over here, you know, which was our 11th ACR um, aviation unit and stuff. And I go over there and go, from, from there? And he goes, yeah. Well, that's like another couple of miles. And he goes, have you been downtown yet? And I go, yeah, actually, I went down there last night, man. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I had like a half chicken and all this kind of stuff and told him all about it. And he goes, well, we're going to run down through there. And then we got to come up that hill. Did you experience yeah. that hill on your way back? And I go, yeah, we actually walked up. And he goes, we're going to be running up it now. And he goes, and you got to make it all the way to the old man standing. He'll be standing on this tower. He's going to be leading us, and he's going to stand on that. And if you don't make it past him, you got to do this all over again tonight for the next week, um, every night. And I had never hoofed, you know, and huffed and puffed so much in all my life. But all I knew is that at that last leg, I made it all the way, and I was coming up that hill, and it was, like, killing me. And a couple of NCOs grabbed me and were trying to drag me across the old man. And as soon as I made it past, I found the nearest pole that I could latch onto that was by the auditorium and just lost everything in the plane and that night before and the whole bit. And uh, my platoon sergeant come over, uh, who was the guy that knocked on the door, and I later found out it was my platoon sergeant, slaps me on the back. He goes, well, welcome to Fulda. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's kind of started the whole thing. And uh, very proud unit and such. But, you know, again, a, a, an era and a time frame that we probably both remember as well. Well, I know? do remember that, but the time you were in Fulda, remember what was going on. Yeah. We were, I mean, Fulda was the first place that the Russians were going to come across if they ever attacked NATO. Most people don't uh, understand that. It's now a museum over there, by the way. Is the, really? Yeah, the, uh, the 11th ACRs, well, first and 11th ACRs outposts and stuff, OP Alpha, which I used to set on. Uh, it's about the size of a football field, really, mm -hmm. the compound that we set. And the tower really overlooked East Germany. And, you know, we could spit and it land in East Germany where the, the treaty lines were. And um, all there was was a you know regular old fence that was around it. I've and seen it. There was I a, saw it. It was a platoon size that. element that was up there, and uh, so we'd have you know some one one threes, and you know later we had Bradleys, but one one threes and some tanks, whether it was A threes and M sixty A threes or M ones. Our sole mission, and especially since I sat up in that tower after I became border qualified, I sat up in that tower the majority of my time every time I went up there, which was very frequent. Every time we come out of the field, we'd go to the border right. if we were border qualified, you know, because you, if your platoon went, that's one thing. But if you're border qualified and, a, and some other unit is short, you get the pleasure of going up there and serving with them, too. And so um, you begin to learn rather quickly that your sole job is to, if you have time, radio back and say they're here. 
And that's probably right. about all you're going to get out of that. No, I, and it was a serious time frame. It, you know, it for was. Sure. I mean, yeah. I was at Fort Hood at the time, and we took a TDY trip over there, the leadership of the battalion. I was a company commander at the time to yeah. uh, visit the Popka site where we were going to draw <laughs> our equipment mm-hmm. and then go see where we were going to live for our eight seconds. Yeah. Um, and it, so we we walked the terrain. I walked the terrain where my company was going to be, figured out where fighting positions would be, you know, everything else. And uh, it was interesting. Yeah. I, I, we, I forget what they used to call those. Um, the name escapes me, but I can tell you that when we got the M1s, they had to start rewriting the whole battle plan because they moved we moved so quickly we actually mm-hmm. went to a reforger right after we got it we went to gunnery then we went to an fd we came right out of graph getting our m1s went right into um to uh, gunnery i think it was and then we went to an ftx at hohenfels come out of that and we go almost like immediately into reforger you know this was the life of an 11th acr oh, yeah. trooper you know i mean i i spent probably i think in a one calendar year uh, 360 days, I think it was, in a, uh, you know, out in the field and everything, and uh, training. And um, we go to the reforger, and because we were using JP4 uh, instead of diesel within the uh, the tanks, you know, the only thing that you could hear was the um, tracks. So you're, mm-hmm. you know, the tracks right, and right. stuff. But we snuck up on a whole company size element that were sleeping. And just knocked them out and everything. And then we'd move from that point, and they would send us in a totally different direction because the commander who was leading this must have been just giddy with excitement. He's like, oh, my <laughs> God. And next thing you know, we're jumping out on the Autobahn. And could you imagine this? You know, an M1 rolling down the uh, company of, um, you know, uh, uh, M1s rolling down the Autobahn doing 60 miles an hour or so, you know. And... Um, passing Germans and everything else as we're moving along through this and stuff and then popping out into another uh, location and then hitting that. And so because of that, they had to start writing and, and modifying those uh, those existing plans because they just weren't prepared for the speed at which the units could now attack. No, and you're absolutely right. But yeah. Similar things were going on in Fort Hood, Texas, yeah. too, because you would do these exercises and all of a sudden I remember being in a company of Bradley's taking advantage of the train, pop up right in front of the Op 4. They barely heard us, didn't know we were there, ran right through them. It's like, holy moly. Wait, I mean, the evaluators are going, what? Yeah. You're not supposed to be like this. You're supposed to come up and you're supposed to get sh- shot. And it's like, no, I'm not going to get shot. <laughs> They're going to get shot, not me. Right. So, you know, yeah. It, it, it was, uh, yeah, the 80s was a time to rewrite doctrine. Yeah. Um, actually, I don't know if you're going to get to it, but I was uh, at Fort Leavenworth. And I actually got to help rewrite doctrine. No, I wasn't yeah. going to get that. Yeah. So, yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, well, um, you, you know, the officer rank. Well, uh, you said about TRADOC. This is when you were at TRADOC. Yeah, yeah TRADOC. Yeah, yeah at the uh, TRADOC Analysis okay. Command, which is at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I don't know if it's still there or not. But um, as officers, you get alternate specialties because the rank pyramid, as it goes up, you need fewer people in combat units. So the Army sent me to graduate school. I got a master's degree in operations research, which is basically a fancy name for problem solving by using (laughs) higher level mathematics and computer modeling and simulation, stuff like that. So uh, I worked in this uh, converted horse stable, literally from the 1880s, where they bricked up the windows and lined the walls and the ceilings with lead. Had a bunch of high-speed computers at the time. And we were uh, one of the... uh, most significant studies I was involved in, I was a main analyst on it, was air land battle future, because the air land battle doctrine came out in the mid-80s to take advantage of what you're just describing, the advanced speeds and then the integration of fires with attack helicopters and all that. 
and then we're looking to the future like oh how do we what do we do now because mlrs was coming on board and it's mm. like all these deep fires and how deep is deep and yep. uh, it, it was just a fascinating study presented that and it uh, ended up as the new fm was it 100-5 i think yeah um so i, I was well, that's very cool. A little known and unknown story, but uh, it was interesting to me. But it's, I, I, I guess, for the audience, what's interesting is that the Army is always looking to the future. Yeah. That we know where we are. We know the type of wars that we've fought and won, the battles that we've fought. But they're always looking to the future. So I would not be surprised at all that uh, they're dusting 100-5 out, updating that for what's going on right now. Yeah, and I, I'll transition to that in some, in, here soon. But I, I think um, what's interesting is all of those things that you just mentioned are things that at that time frame um, were beginning, but you still see them existing as equipment today. Like right. um, I went down to the uh, kind of give a plug to the Warrior Training Center down at Fort Benning, which is the Army National Guard and, quite frankly, the Army's best kept, uh, kept secret. I never even knew that it, it existed there, but out by ranger school and sniper school and all that is this little known compound that you end up driving by um, that is the Warrior Training Center that does all kinds of great training, very um, well put together from mm -hmm. Pathfinder, Master Gunner, um, Pre-Ranger, uh, all kinds of stuff that they do there. And so I was out there and I actually uh, um, got a chance to get on the M1 again because of the Master Gunner training. And uh, it, just to get back inside that piece of equipment, flood of memories came back of sitting in the gunner and the, t and the <clears throat> tank commander's you know, TC seat and everything else. And everything for the most part, looked exactly the same. And so I had to ask the questions of the NCOs that were there, that were instructors. I was like, so I'm just kind of curious. I mean, we're now a long ways away from where I transitioned from A3s, first from an A1 to an A3, then to an M1. And having done that, and of course it's not a 105 millimeter, it's right. a 120 smoothbore and everything, right. but still that's about the main thing that's changed out of that whole thing. The computer systems are very similar and stuff from what they were in the beginning. How out of date do you feel this is now? You know, and it was an interesting conversation because a lot of the equipment, M16s and stuff, I mean, we, we've modified and, you know, and those types right. of things, which is great, but it's... It's important to continue evaluating the piece of equipment that we have. Are they the best for today's warfare and those types of things? We were having discussion offline about six hour and you know them mm -hmm. coming online and those types of things. A10s are still around, you know, because they're still a beast, you know. Oh, they are. And and you think about that kind of weaponry and where it started, what was its purpose was, but how it's lived and survived. It, it was. It really demonstrates to me the genius of it that happened in the very beginning, the thought process, what went into it, that these weapons weren't just going to be around for a short period of time, but they really were very good pieces of equipment. The United States modified does our great at designing yeah. these systems. I mean, they really do. Um, <laughs> an interesting story here. The, uh, at Fort Hood, when we got the Bradleys, were going through new equipment training. Um, FMC thought that they had figured out everything that a soldier could possibly break on a Bradley. Uh, they didn't. Uh, but by the time, that whatever period of time that was, a couple months training was over, they had had like 240-plus modified work orders for things that they wow. should have thought of because you can't uh, soldier-proof, and it's not against soldiers. I mean, sure. I'm a soldier, too. Yeah. But, you know, just things that soldiers do. You get in a track and you throw your helmet someplace and you put on your... Uh, you know, your CVC, CVC yeah. and you do this and that, and the little things 
that designers don't ever think of. Yeah. Uh, we broke it. Yeah. Um, I say that half proud because it might have saved lives down the road because we broke it in, <laughs> yeah. in the equipment training. But, but, but to your point, though, these things have been tooled and retooled, and they're still, they're still there. What we have to do is uh, make sure we still know how to use them the best we can. I'm not talking individual soldier training. I'm talking, you know, we're going from a, an army fighting an insurgency war to potentially a different type of war. So we got to make sure we know what we're doing. Most definitely. Um, you know, you just kind of made me think of a flashback that's kind of a little bit off base, but um, did you guys have, like, clean, clean tracks? I mean, ours were so I – I think we had um, – toothbrushes and we'd have a bucket that stayed on our tank all the time we'd have a toothbrush and another brush and soap and such and so we'd scrub inside there and we'd even put rubber matting down because you talk about throw stuff around and all that now that would never happen in my tank because it was so pristine you could have ate off the floor you know type of thing now ours weren't like that we you, you, <laughs> i didn't want to eat off we the floor. had to keep them uh, that but, way yeah uh, no we didn't do that yeah, i mean really. it had to be clean and you know yeah. get out of the field all muddy and snow and whatever else you got to go oh yeah as soon as we came out of the field Everything else, but no, I'm talking about like uh, pristine cleaning too. We're not talking yeah. about just taking. Yeah, okay, never mind. That, that may have been a reflection <laughs> on the the commander at some level above you. Uh, <laughs> maybe a battalion or brigade who was yeah. more about show than. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, the many many hours just sat there. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just making that thing. Uh, so it's it, and maybe this is a great time frame because we are talking a lot and weaving around how today it's very similar to what it was in the past. And history has a way of repeating itself. And, you know, people talk about, you know, again, like I was saying, Cold War veterans and such. But yet today we probably can lend a lot of information to those individuals who are currently serving because we're facing some of the same powers that were there. They didn't go away. There was this whole thought process you know, even after I um, was long gone from 11th ACR and everything, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Reagan, you know, stood up there and said, you know, Mr. Kremlin, you know, take the ball down or right. whatever his words were, you know, um, paraphrasing or whatever. But, right, right. you know, I, I kind of it was funny to me because I looked at my wife and I go, you know, where where I served, there was no walls there. There wasn't hardly even a fence. Matter of fact, in many occasions, there was nothing. You just had to be able to read a map very well or you could end up on the wrong side, you know. Right. And um, so I looked at it more of no walls are coming down politically we're moving boundaries or talking as if things have changed but the reality is you can't change the air and you can't change the minds in that way and i think that's what we're kind of experiencing you know is that a re it's come back I, you know I, I, it's I never left right. maybe I, maybe it's left yeah. never left is what i'm saying for yeah. the russians is, is what we're talking about yeah uh, i don't think it ever left mm -hmm. um if you look at the way they're fighting the war now We've gone through doctrinal changes to adapt to more lethal weapons, more longer-range weapons. They're still stuck back in the Second World War. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, what they're doing, leveling cities with artillery, they have no sense of combined arms training whatsoever from what I can see online yeah. and on TV. Um, and it's, it's their system, which is corrupt, their political system. When I was at Recruiting Command... Uh, Belarusia was going to an all-volunteer force, and uh, I was like the deputy, essentially the was chief of operation. I forget what it was, but it was like deputy G3. Then I was the acting G3 for like six or months. So, and these Belarusians came over. They wanted to know, well, how do you put together a volunteer army? And at the time, 
the United States was trying to be friendly with all these former satellites, and it paid off. I mean, look at you know Poland and Hungary and all these other countries. You know, Czechoslovakia now it's the Czech Republic and Slovakia it used to be Soviets, and now they're in NATO, and so it did work to an extent. I mean, yeah. Russia they never moved Belarus anyway. Uh, they came over with a contingent of about 15 officers led by a major general. And the only one who spoke English was this lieutenant colonel who's a former Spetsnaz officer. And I was a lieutenant colonel, so in addition to being in my position there in the G3, um, he and I got along, two lieutenant colonels drinking vodka together, all this other stuff. So I, I, the only reason I mention this is because it was interesting, not on the recruiting part of it, but how he and they acted. They pulled up to Fort uh, Knox uh, Officers Club the first day they were there. They all got off. Madam said, you know, I took two years of Russian. I can't speak much now, but I, you know, said a little bit and then did the. So we went into the Officers Club and said, well, this is where you can eat. Uh, this is where we're going to eat lunch, and of course it's on us. Uh, there's a hotline over here. It looks like they have roast beef or chicken and vegetables. And over here is a sandwich line where you can have a sandwich any way you want it. Or if you just want soup and a salad, you go over there. And then the drinks, you know, we have iced tea and sodas and things over on that table over there. And, and, and they looked at me, and he translated, and then they're all looking at me. And it's like, okay, I get it. So I went over, and I decided they needed a good meal because they all looked kind of skinny. So I got some roast beef and mashed potatoes and some green beans. Every one of them, just like ducks following mama duck. Roast beef, potatoes, <laughs> green beans. I got iced tea. They got iced tea. Sat down. Yeah. And it was kind of like that, where they, they didn't have, and this was in the early 90s, where they didn't have the ability to make their own decisions. Yeah. Because there was so many decisions to be made. Um, another story, and then I'll end up this, because this, this does have a point here. At the end of their uh, four or five day stay at Fort Knox, they were given like 300 bucks by the State Department to go out to uh, buy some things to take home. And we figured out that we could not take them to the mall down in Louisville because their heads would explode. There were too many choices. So we took them to Walmart. Walmart, okay? Uh, not, not a fancy super, so just Walmart. Yeah. Uh, and the lieutenant colonel, he wanted to buy a gym bag. And, you know, you go to Walmart, you have like 20 different kinds. He couldn't make up his mind. <laughs> the two-star general was trying to buy jeans, and he said, what about these? I said, well, this is, well, I don't. Actually, it was somebody else told him. He said, well, this is this brand and this is this brand. And he said, well, I don't know what to do. I mean, so it was going on in my head that why are we so afraid, uh, fearful of the Russians? Well, A, because they have nukes. That's a good reason to be afraid yeah. of them. But in terms of their army, if this was the leadership, why did I spend most of my adult life worrying about how they're going to come across the border. They can't even lead themselves around a Walmart, can't decide what to eat for lunch. Yeah. And I'm worried about them coming through the fold of gap. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and what do we see today? Yeah. What do we see today in Ukraine? I mean, 40-mile-long I mean, convoys? Right. What American at the rank of E4 or above, I mean, seriously, yeah. would ever allow that to happen? Yeah. And then when you look at when they do take primary hit, what oh. did they end up doing? Yeah, uh, the reaction. It's amazing to me. I, I just. I, it's, and it's funny that you said that because I don't remember what the story was. Maybe you can tell me because um, my memory is just not that good. But I remember <laughs> there was something going on in which we were doing joint maneuver or there was something like that. What you just mm -hmm. described where Americans, Russians, and they were observing the the um, 
U.S. Army doing certain training, and um, I can't remember what it was, but I remember the story goes something like an an NCO was, you know, platoon sergeant or something, and squad leaders were, you know, calling commands and doing all that stuff, and some general officer made a comment about, you know, who is that? You know, what are they doing? That would never happen in our military. You know, we don't... Yeah, that 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 scenario doesn't happen, and your your NCOs they're very smart. You know, they know what they're doing, and yeah, and but that was again '80s when I heard that. I was like '83, you know, when I heard that at that time frame, and and we remember like they had what was it T seventy T seventy twos T eighties, you know old uh, equipment where they were still cranking, you know, the main gun inside yeah. the turret, you know, and stuff like that. It sounds crazy. And yeah, we did that whenever, you know, our cherry juice blew or something and we had to do that. But outside of that, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, yeah, it's a hydraulic, a hydraulic system. Yeah, just, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to. And, and it, that was always uh, interesting to us of like, we already thought that we could take out three, four of their tanks easily. You oh, know, yeah. and no problem. Oh, yeah, we got four, t- uh, you know, four X coming at us in in uh, in armor and everything. Eh, no big deal. Now you get that ten X, I might get a little worried or something. <laughs> like that. But we were very confident in our capabilities at that time. Oh frame. yeah, and we were too. I, yeah. I, I mean, the army as a whole was, particularly after we got the Bradleys. Yeah. Like, oh, don't mess with us. Yeah, we will take you down. And, and it is very interesting watching what's transpiring over there. And uh, but I think you know. What is it? What do we take from that? I mean, you know, is the bear still the bear? Well, the bear is still the bear because they have nukes. I, I, I mean, I'm not right. sure that they could have the ability to go beyond Ukraine, or that they really have the ability to stay in Ukraine. Um, it, it's just, it's a colossal flop, and it shows the whole corruptness of their system. Mm-hmm. You know, I read something online that said that one. Uh, fuel depot inside Russia was probably blown up by the guy who was in charge of it because he was probably selling most of the fuel out of it to make money for himself, so there wasn't enough fuel there to supply it, so it's easier to blow it up than to do things. <laughs> I mean, it's, seriously, I, I, yeah. no, it's only a theory. I don't have any firsthand knowledge. Yeah. But, but knowing what we know about the corruptness of the system that they live under, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think that is what strikes fear because, um, you know, you've got the guy that's in charge, former KGB, you know, a lot of concerns there about that environment, the early days. Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting time, I think, that when we look across the globe and how the powers that be that we were concerned about, not just Russia, but even China at that mm-hmm. time frame, but Russia definitely was a threat that we were concerned with trying to hold down our side of what happened post-World War II and them being right there across the border, you know, but North Korea, you know, the yeah. DMZ, it was still there. Um, but, you know, what we what we experienced at that time frame, it's just very, it's, I don't know how you describe it, what word to use, but I'm seeing some of those same feelings that I had at that time frame. I'm starting to witness through what's happening today and in power plays and power shifts across countries and whether people feel like or not people, but leaders within these companies feel like they want to test that to see just how far they can go and who's going to give and take. Um, so it leads me to where when political leaders make decisions, there's, you know, this mindset maybe by some in the general public that um, we in the military have a choice as to what we do as warriors. 
you know, and whether or not we can go against the grain or what happens. And, you know, you swear an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and the leaders, you know, above you, mm-hmm. which means that basically you give up your almost your citizen rights, basically, you know, in a lot of ways, because now you're going to fi- uh, follow military doctrine and you're going to, you know, do whatever is possible to support and defend the Constitution against domestic. Uh, All enemies uh, foreign and domestic. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Against enemies foreign and domestic. So in looking at that, what, what is your comment to that when people make, uh, you know, remarks about with all the changes that are going on and the challenges um, as leaders and individuals? Well, I, I would say that uh, one thing to keep in mind that there's no intelligence or IQ test to be elected to any position, whether it's a local dog catcher or anything all the way up to the President of the United States. The only requirement is that you get 50% plus one of the votes. Uh, our political system uh, does not always get the best people to come forward for office because of the press, and it doesn't always elect the best people. But having said that, it's still the best political system in the world, bar none. So it's um, democracy is ugly, and it's, it's just not a pretty thing to behold watching the sausage being made. But again, there's no better system. I mean, compare us to Putin in Russia. He's an autocrat in charge of the whole system, and what do you have? It's corrupt from top to bottom. And you can make arguments that we have corruption, and we do have corruption in the United States, but when we find it, we root it out, and we kill that weed. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have used killed. Maybe I should say <laughs> pulled out. the weed. Plucked yeah. the weed. There, okay. Um, but, but, you know, the hope for us is... Uh, I believe in the political system with the military and civilians is that we have people who participate in their government, not just voting, but they stay involved in, in knowing what's going on. If they see something they don't like, then they need to talk to somebody. Yeah. And, and there's, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole myself here, but I think it's kind of important. So uh, when you talk to somebody, the way to talk to uh, an elected person is to voice your complaint, but don't think that they're going to remember who you are because at virtually every level from county commissioner on up through Congress, they're dealing with thousands of people. They're not going to remember you. So if you think they're taking notes and writing it down, that ain't happening. So don't think that's going to work. However, if you get in front of one and tell them and they seem sympathetic and say, uh, I'm Representative Jones and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, say, great, uh, can I have your email? Uh, who on your staff do I need to forward all the details to? And where most people get frustrated is they talk to somebody, but they don't follow it up with the details necessary to act upon it. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, I'm not going to dwell on this, but I'm elected in North Carolina House of Representatives. I tell people, send me an email, give me as much information as you can, you feel comfortable with, <clears throat> and let me see what I can do. And I don't promise results, I promise effort. You, you always get 100% effort, but I can't necessarily promise you the results that you want. Where individual citizens sometimes have a problem is they want what they want because they want it, kind of like your kids do. They want the results. They don't want the effort because sometime under there might be a legal reason why or a technological reason or something. You can't always have what you want. So sometimes people get frustrated with that too. So it's a, you have to keep the communication flowing both ways, and it's incumbent upon the citizen who has a gripe to make sure that they give the elected official at whatever level all the information that person and his staff needs to address it. Mm-hmm. I think the Rolling Stones were the one that coined that term, though. Um, right. You can't always get what you want. Oh, that um, was. Yeah, but sometimes if you, 
if you try sometimes, you might just get what you need. There you go. There you go. Hey. Okay. So, <laughs> so through these political challenges and stuff and the things that we're seeing throughout the country and the fact that the war is, you know, the 20-year war is ended right. and you've got officers and NCOs that are now trying to maintain st- uh, stability, trying to get a little bit like the Cold War era. You don't know where, what's next. It's going to be, it may not be a main front, but it could be on multiple fronts. It could be, um, you know, maybe... Um, not in the doctrine in which you're studying today, like we were talking about right. earlier. It's a changing environment. You got to understand, you know, who, where the power play and what type of warfare that uh, that could be. You know, whether it's cyber warfare or whether mm-hmm. it's you know something else. And so I think um, I wonder a lot of times our NCOs and officers struggle with trying to maintain motivation in a time where you're not preparing for that next deployment, but instead you're just de- you're you're preparing for something that's truly the unknown and it's a, it's a time frame and that I we agree. lived in and we yeah. did live in that and yeah. we always had the uh a boogeyman of you know thermonuclear war or and or world war three in the central plains of europe mm-hmm. um do we have that same boogeyman now i i would say yes based on what i've seen in ukraine but even barring that it's always transition times major transition times are always difficult for people whether it's an institution like the Army going through the transition now or whether it's a transition of when you're first married getting used to living with the person that you just married. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So you have to um, you always have, have to be open to new information and new ways of looking at things. If you always think that tomorrow is going to be like yesterday, you're going to be frustrated and doomed to failure because tomorrow is going to be different, I don't know how, than yesterday. But you you have to have... The ability to, to process more information and try and make the best decision that you can if you know, this makes sense. No, it makes total sense. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people are trying to live in a level of comfort because they, you know, they don't like change maybe, or they, they just want things to remain calm. I don't want to have to get stressed out if I don't have to. I'd like to live, you know, with my bubble. And listen, there was a lot of beautiful things about having three channels of television, four if you got UHF at the time frame. <laughs> That's um, true. And having a, a, a telephone that hung on the wall, and if you wanted to reach me, I might have an answer machine if those came about, but if I'm gone from the house, it's you're not going to get me. Um, so living in that bubble was wonderful. Um, our amount of information was really confined to what was within that sphere of influence that was around you. But nowadays, it's whatever we allow to be within our sphere of influence, um, whatever we we go out and try to get our information from, and social media becoming more real-time, and then influencers that are being used, which we talked about earlier, yeah. about influence being used for marketing. They're also being used from a political game standpoint to use somewhat psychological operations about what you should be thinking. Here's what you should be focusing on. This is what you... And it's very interesting time frame... Um, that still reminds me back of even when we didn't have information, you still had similar concerns. And people are, are I, I think I used to tell people at work for me that change is constant. You're always going to be faced with these mm-hmm. things at all time frames. So when you really think about it, you're never going to be a, in a level of comfort. But it's more about what focusing on what you can control and not letting outside things influence your decisions if you can. Yeah, you know? I, and I think that's a good way of putting it. I, Maybe an analogy is like you've seen the movies in the stock market when you've got one guy in the middle and there's like 100 guys around him or gals saying blah, 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 you know, buy, buy, sell, sell. And the person in the middle, he can't handle it all. He can't service 
every single person. I, I feel like that myself today. Like I'm that guy in the middle because I'm getting bombarded on my phone, on my iPad, on television, on the radio, on TV, yep. people I know, everything else. So it's you have to be able to discern who can you trust. And, and some people, I'd, I'd love to know more about this person or that person, but I just don't have the, the bandwidth to do it. So, so as individuals, how do you process all the information? Yeah. I, I mean, our brains are amazing, better than any supercomputer. But still, we're on information overload all the time. Yeah. And, and one of the dangers here is that uh, whatever your political viewpoints or whatever you think, we tend to become very secure in our own lack of knowledge about different things because we've decided that we're going to think X, uh, even if it becomes like really a stupid position over time. But because we know that and we feel secure about it, we're not even willing to listen to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem comes in. You always have to be able to listen to somebody, not just agree with them, but at least you have to listen to them. I think with what I've seen in politics that the biggest problem is most people just aren't willing to listen. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you know, the, the old saying goes, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. And you can listen. I've listened to all kind of people from, and I've been criticized for it, but you know what? Some of them have good ideas. It just gets covered up in the noise. So it's yeah. it's one of these things you can't listen to everybody, but you got to be able to listen to opposing viewpoints. So how do you do that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think it crosses, uh, you know, again, without getting too much into the politics or political side of this, I think what you're describing is a, a country, um, a globe in which we're struggling with this at the speed of information that's coming at us as to how we can hold on to our individual um, opinions and how we can uh, formulate opinions and how that's coming about and, and all of that. And, yeah, it's uh, kind of, then it goes on to the, you know, um, other writers and stuff. We mentioned the Rolling Stones, but there's some other great songs out there that talk about this very topic, you yeah. know, and um, trying to get along and find the divide and all of that. But uh, at any rate, when um, when you're looking at, and, and especially through your experience and stuff from the time that you were in the military, you know, what you've done since then and everything else, I'm really curious, what do you see as the things that stand out to, uh, to you the most as far as traits of leaders? Because we've both um, talked about off um, the, the air and everything about toxic leadership or leadership that just wasn't healthy, however you call it. And some people would say, um, there is no such thing as toxic leadership. Leadership means you're actually leading. So it's either you're leading or you're not. But there are people who are influencing, which is leadership, in a very different manner that's not healthy. Yeah, I think there can be toxic leadership, particularly in the military or in business, because you have people in positions, positional leadership. You have the power of the position, and you can use it for good or you can use it for ill. Mm -hmm. You can use it to help forward, uh, you know, make the mission progress, or you can center it back on yourself. So I think there actually is toxic leadership. Uh, traits of good leadership, you know, it starts with lead, follow, or get out of the way. Yeah. I, I, but to lead, you have to have knowledge of what you're trying to lead about. In yeah. the military, it's um, somewhat easier because yeah. the Army in particular, what I'm most familiar with, has all these courses, and no matter what your rank is, they're going to train you on the systems, they're going to train you on everything. Um, so you have knowledge, you know, that's one component of leadership. You have to know technical stuff, but then you have to be able to take care of your soldiers, take care of your employees. And when I first transitioned uh, from the Army to the civilian world, the thing that struck me the most 
was that uh, in the first company I was in, they said that they cared about their employees, but they didn't care about the employees. They, they cared about a couple employees that was their drinking buddies. Yeah. Uh, but everybody else, they can basically can go screw off. They didn't really care, which is not a good characteristic. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly I think what you learn in, in the armed forces is you take care of your soldiers at whatever level. Yeah, it's as simple as the, the leader is always the last one to eat when the child comes on site. Make sure the soldiers are fed first, and then you're the last one to go through the child line. If there's no more child, well, that's the price of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been incredibly difficult for me in some of my positions to say, oh, you're our guest here. You go first. It's like, no, no, I don't do that. You know, it's like I, it, it's still in my head because it was drilled in that, you know, as a leader, you go last, that all the people who are doing the work go first. Yeah. So it's not everybody retains that. I can tell you that. I just found that people, no, I didn't retain it because I found that most people, <laughs> I sat there starving because everybody's arguing over who's going to go first and everything. I'm, well, then I'm just going to go ahead and well, get my plate. I, sometimes I come to that too, but it's, <laughs> but, 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 but it's, it's, the, yeah. it's the deeper mindset because they're trying to honor you as a guest sure. or an honorable whatever. Um, but what's in my mind and your mind is, you know, take care of the soldiers. Yeah. It's always absolutely. there. So, so straight uh, leadership, it's always desirable to take care of the employees, take care of the soldiers, take care of the troops first. Um, you know, honesty, obviously. I, mean, yeah. I, I wasn't quite sure you were going to ask this question in this manner. but Yeah, you know, integrity. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's some I'll, of the basic I'll, stuff. but It I, is the basic what, stuff. What is it that you feel like was the most important? It sounds like just, you know, really taking care uh, of your soldiers or taking care of your people, really showing that genuineness. I think it's integrity, honesty, and taking care of people. Yeah. I mean, the, the company I'm working for right now, I'm in mortgage lending, and I'm a branch manager. I, I had my own company for a while. I closed that. I got with this company. I've got like eight or ten people working for me. And every company has its stresses right now in the housing market. There's not a lot of houses being sold because there's much more demand than there's supply, so there's not as many mortgages, and there was rate issues, all this stuff. But I, I'm just very honest with my folks. I mean, I had this possible mini rebellion about one of the issues. And I was just honest with him and said, look, from A to Z, here, here's what the reason why the company's doing this. And I don't know the company. I'm, you know, it's a huge mm-hmm. company. But here's why things are going on. They're like, well, and I said, then I got my regional manager. And we went out and let them voice their concerns. They kind of like the air coming out of the balloon. Yeah. And they didn't like the answer, but we're entirely honest with them about the whys and the wherefores. And it's not about making money. Well, you know, civilian corporations is always about making money. But that wasn't the reason things were happening. Once people understood the reason, they didn't like it, yeah. but they understood it. So the revolt and everybody quitting going somewhere else to work uh, ended. Why? Because I listened to their complaints, addressed their complaints honestly, and they know they can come to me about anything anyway. Yeah. So it, but sometimes... You know, things get in. We've all been in arguments, and sometimes arguments start on the stupidest thing, and then it takes two to tango, as they say. So you kind of ramp up and ramp up, and, ramp, and you get to this point where the only way to to unramp is to, if it goes too far, is like quit, have a fight, or whatever. You got to prevent that happening. So you you have to defuse the situation somehow. And I'm not saying make stuff up or tell them what they want to hear. Just knowledge be honest and if they don't like it then well it's like i've done everything i can if you still don't like me if you don't like the company there's the door yeah you hit on something that's important to me that uh, i was going to talk with you about which is uh, one good communicator I, I definitely believe that communication means it's 
two people talking, not one. Right. Um, but in terms of like transparency, you know, I think, you know, as leaders within the military, we we at least were trained, all right, you've got to make sure that that operational order and what we're talking about doing a mission set gets elevated or cascaded all the way down. Everybody has a need to know at some level. All right. And uh, it goes down through there so everybody understands what True North is, where we're marching and everything else. In the private sector, though, I found that, um, and maybe the same may be true within the military today because I don't serve, so I don't know. But transparency is something that's so important as a leader to me that you make sure that you're putting out enough information and being as transparent as possible about what direction you're going, what you're doing, um, you know, whether it's financially how things are or whatever. In the, in, in the military, it could be a very different topic. Um, but I've always felt that transparency means that integrity, that honesty, and that you're a good communicator too, because you're, you're exposing yourself, you're exposing the company, you're exposing whatever and letting them know you may not have all the answers. Well, and, and I agree a hundred percent. I mean, and you do expose yourself, you put yourself at that risk and yeah, there've been times when that risk I've put myself at and various <laughs> things has not been rewarded, but you know what? When I go to bed and I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror, I know that the guy who's looking back at me has been honest and done the best he can, that I wasn't lying, cheating, stealing, or, or, or not being transparent. Yeah. And, and when it really comes down to it, you have to be able to live with yourself. You have to know who you are, what are the values that you hold dear, and where you're going to never cross a line. And in my experience, in mainly in the civilian sector, but every once in a while in the military you'll see it, People are willing to uh, prostitute themselves for whatever gain it might be, financial, sexual, whatever, positional, and they cross the line and they get the reward, but they've lost everything in getting that small, temporary, transitional reward. And they think that they're all that, but they're really not. Mm -hmm. So it's it really comes back to integrity. You retired when? Oh, gonna make now people gonna be mad. Ninety six, yeah, ninety six. Yeah. So in in ninety six, um, what was the rank when you got out? I was a lieutenant colonel. So what was the last school then? Military school that you went through? I can't remember. The last school I went to is CGSOC. Okay. Fort Leavenworth. Now, what does that what does that entail? Uh, that's uh, Command General Staff Officers course, which then and still like military today. doctrine. Yeah, it was for majors and lieutenant colonels to prepare you to go out and be staff officers to at the uh, uh, brigade. Uh, well, really, it, it was more focused on brigade, division, national lines above reality levels, so you could be a good staff officer. And a lot of it was doctrines so that you understood the complete war fighting doctrine, because when you're a, a field grade officer. You have to know how to do the plans where it integrates the long-range fires with the close mm -hmm. fires, and mm -hmm. you got to understand how all these things fit together. So it, it, a lot of book learning and doctrinal stuff. If you could go back to those days and think about what it was that, uh, especially at the rank that you were at in leading, you know, battalions and size elements and such, you know, um, and what we're facing today, um, or in the military, what they're looking at today. Um, how do you see the, you know, getting back a little bit just you know, quickly, how do you see from that training, what do you see that's going on within the world? Um, and, and I don't know if you, if you can really share too much, but, uh, your thoughts on that, but I mean, what do you see be the biggest concerns that we should be worried about? And I think you said nuclear, but is there, is it other things that we should also, right, well, nuclear is always in the back of my mind. I grew up, 
uh, when I was in second grade, had to hide under my desk in case the Russians. Yeah, we had those us. drills, yeah. So we had drills like that, and you tell that to people now, and they laugh. So you did what? Desk isn't going to help you. It's like, well, duh. I knew that even when I was in second grade, but <laughs> exactly, you do what you're did. told, you know. So yeah, I mean, the nuclear boogeyman's always out there. Uh, it's um, you know, for human beings or human beings, we haven't figured out how to get along with one another. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's bad enough within our own communities and then within the country, let alone with countries who don't uh, look, think, and act like we do and have completely different value systems. I think one of the biggest issues that faces the country right now, um, and many Americans in their personal viewpoints, is that we know how we grew up and we think that the rest of the world shares ideals. It's called mirroring, that you, you know, if you're going to deal with a Russian, you think he thinks like he does. He doesn't think anything like we do. You talk to somebody who grew up in China, and I'm not talking about, you know, the leader of China. I'm talking about just an average businessman because I've dealt with them, too. They think nothing like we do. And we put ourselves intentionally at disadvantage when we don't learn a little bit about the other cultures that we're dealing with because we think everybody thinks like we do and holds the same things near and dear to their hearts. The rest of the world doesn't. Mm-hmm. Now, Western Europe, which is why most of them are mostly in line with Western ideals. Uh, the Far East, uh, uh, there are different countries that I've dealt with folks from that uh, even some of our allies, they don't think like we do, so you have to understand that. And the biggest danger we have is when people get in a position of power, be it political or military, and you're dealing with somebody else, that you, you assume everybody's doing things for the right motivation, the same motivations we have. So that might not be what you're looking for, but no, that's it was, kind of, it's great kind of because it comes to me. I think it ties in nicely, you know, with uh, leadership and understanding the exact same thing and understanding uh, cultures, backgrounds, people. Um, you know, everybody comes from different environments that comes in, and they also think introverted, extroverted. Uh, yeah. uh, there are, you know, when you start thinking about even Myers Briggs and st- stuff like that, the reason why those types of things are so important is that. As a, as a manager, as a leader, you're supposed to be thinking about it's not just a, a one-way-fits-all type of thing, you know, how right. to get and influence other people. Um, so there's one thing to, you know, as a country to understand that from other nations and stuff, but then as a leader or as a manager, it's to understand the people that you're trying to influence, that you got to use different skill sets in order to get the same point across. You really do, and a lot yeah. of that comes with being uh, from experience and in, in <laughs> failing at lower levels and mm-hmm. when you, and saying wisdom. the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. I guess that's what it's called. Um, yeah. And the Army certainly gave me a lot of wisdom and how not to do things in certain circumstances from which I learned how to do things uh, in a better way. Sure. And the same way in the civilian world. I mean, it really is. It's the, Anybody getting out of the service, whether they're getting out as an E-4, whether they're getting out as a uh, general officer, the Army has taught you really the basics and the advanced, if you stand long enough, of how to deal with people. Now, whether you've taken advantage of that training or not, that's a different issue. But you've had the training where you know how to deal with different types of personalities. It was always a, a curse and a blessing when you'd get a new commander in at whatever level because you finally got used to the old person, whether it was a platoon leader, company commander, battalion, all the way up. And then you either loved them or hated them. If, if you hate them, it's like, thank God that guy's gone. <laughs> and, you know, and the new person comes in, it's like, oh, this is going to be so much better. You know, or, or if you love them, it's like, oh, nobody will ever be as good as that person. And you get somebody in that's probably equally good, but you, you, know, you can't wrap your head around it. So it, it's a good thing in the Army about that. What people got to understand when they transition to the civilian world, 
is your platoon leader, company commander, platoon sergeant, whatever, probably ain't going anywhere anytime soon mm-hmm. if they're doing their job is defined by their job description. So that in and of itself is a skill you have to learn with in civilian communities yeah. on how to deal with that. Now, if they're the greatest guy in the world, like best boss ever, you know, that's kind of cool. But if they're like worst boss ever, you still got to deal with that. Now you do have more options. You can quit and look for someplace else, or you can uh, do your job really good and get promoted above the knucklehead above you. But it, it you have to change the, your own mindset when you get in the civilian world. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads in nicely because my next thing I was going to ask you about is uh, what advice would you give to those guys, uh, gals, what are the service members who are coming off of active duty and transition? So that fit rather well. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think I would add to that and say, you know, um, actually um, trying to find ways to demonstrate your value to your employer, um, understanding that that's what it's all about, too, is what do you bring to the table, you right. know, and and how can you demonstrate that? And if you learn that very early on, that, you know, you need to set yourself apart, differentiate yourself, whether you're a business that's focused on a certain market segment or you're an individual that's trying to set yourself apart from others in the room, you know, it's... it's Independent uh, of what level you're coming out of service, yeah. if you're just... Ending up a six-year term, you might be an E5, you may be an E6, you might be an E4. I mean, it depends on your MOS, uh, as opposed to somebody getting out the 10-year point or the retirement point at 20 years or a 30-year. What people understand, at least around North Carolina, uh, understand, and this knowledge tends to dissipate the further you get from major military installations, they know that if they hire you at whatever level you're coming out, they know you're going to show up on work on time, which in the civilian world is huge. The 99.9% chance you're going to be drug-free. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is that you know how to work with other people and take orders. Not take orders like, yes, or yes, or three bags full, but you'll be given a mission and you'll work to accomplish the mission instead of just hearing somebody and kind of drift off in the corner and, and, and put time on the clock but not do any work. Those three things in and of uh, by themselves, put anybody at whatever rank they're coming out, unless they got court-martialed and kicked out, uh, levels, many levels above the normal workforce out there. Yeah. I, and and it, it just is. Why? Because you got to show up for PT. you got to do your job. you got to do your mission. You, you know, if, whether you're in combat or never been in combat, you have those skills of accomplishing the mission and that really translates to the civilian world a quick story i know a uh, owner he's a good friend of mine of a major major solar company in the country um <laughs> when i first met him it was about eight years ago i went up to his headquarters in durham north carolina and he was very proud of the fact that he had a former e7 running the the corporate tool bin there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he'd had a bunch of c- civilian People working with tools. And this was like a warehouse is what it was. But the C-7 had been a supply sergeant and done some other things and worked at a depot, came in, and he he just redid everything. No more losses. Everything was accounted for. Everybody was happy. And, and I told him, I said, well, why don't you have any uh, former NCOs working out on your work crews installing stuff? He said, well, I've been thinking about that. So, uh, you know, Fort Bragg, we have between six and 8,000 soldiers a year either ETSing or retiring out of there. So he hired some guys. He actually hired an SF um, E7 who had retired. 
and he put him in charge of a work crew. And, and <laughs> it was a work crew of about, I think it was 40 or 60 people. He fired like 10 of the people because they never showed up to work, hired a few more. He did more work in the next six, in his first six weeks there than the previous people had done in eight months. Yeah, believe it. And, and now, uh, this person with this company, he won't hire anybody but ex-military because they get the job done. Yeah. And, and, and the good part about that for this ex-military guy was since he was so productive, he paid him three times what the guy he replaced got paid. Yep. So you can get compensated for doing the job, being mission-focused, and just doing what we've all learned to do in the Army. And yeah, it's, it's just, natural. Just, just do it. Yeah. You know, don't, don't expect any civilian to lead you around and tell you how to do stuff. I mean, they'll show you the technical stuff. Right. But the leadership things that you learn from a corporal on up are invaluable in the civilian world. You've been an entrepreneur more times, you know, and you've, you've <laughs> talked about how you've uh, started businesses and stuff like that. Um, any advice that you would give for people who are thinking of starting up a business? And Because there's a lot of guys that are coming off of back of duty, and I see more and more of them going uh, along that path, you know, being yeah. an entrepreneur. And I, I think it's a good way to go. I, I, I retired in 96, worked for a guy for two years in a mortgage company, and... Uh, I, I hit it on this a little bit earlier, but the, the bottom line was I found out two years into it that he was doing coke parties every weekend and he was flying to New York and whoring around. And just, I mean, he was really a bad guy. Yeah. I never saw that. And I was at a party and somebody said, I told him who I worked for. And the guy turned around and walked away from me. So you don't know about what it's like. I didn't know. I, I don't, that's not my thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So I found out I gave him two weeks notice and I quit because he was just really a, a, a bad, not wow. good person. And start my own company. Um, so you should know what you're doing when you start a company. But I can tell you that if you're going to start a company, you're not going to know what you're doing because you never know all the things that it takes. I mean, you just don't. Um, I've On my fourth company right now, I had a mortgage company, a marketing company, a real estate company for a time. None of these were like Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they were successful. And either uh, closed down when markets changed or sold them, um, you know, at the end. I haven't made millions, but I've had a good life. Uh, the last com latest company I'm in is a manufacturing company. I'll tell you, if you, if you want to manufacture something, it's completely different than services and, and thinking and consulting. Uh, just the, the costs, the engineering costs involved, the yeah. cost of products and prototypes and... Uh, we had to go through seven prototypes, and each one of those cost thousands of dollars. Scalability. Uh, yeah, and then it's it's a completely different thing. So if you can get on Shark Tank and you got the next best idea, you get funded. <laughs> if not, look for somebody, if you want to go into manufacturing something, look for somebody who is, is aligned in your field and get with them uh, to uh, hopefully they can help you figure out some of those other things. But you know what it really comes down to? is you should do what you want to do. <laughs> I mean, uh, unless it's robbing banks. Not yeah. <laughs> but, legally, but, but legally, ethically, morally. You know, yeah. You have, to, you have to be satisfied in life. I'm not going to say happy because you're not always happy, but right. satisfied. Right. You, know, you have to know who you are, make sure you can provide for your family, and try and do something good for your community. So in the sense of that manufacturing piece, do you want to kind of share a little bit about that? Because uh, you shared some stuff with us offline that's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, there's a, a retired NCO friend of mine that um, 
we met through the local political party and we kind of hit it off together. He says, I've got this idea. And so I said, well, you know, the AR charging handles are, I don't like this thing where you're pulling it back. And it was always a problem. It's like, well, what's your idea? And he said, well, I got this idea. And he showed me, sketched on a piece of paper. And I said, oh, that's pretty interesting. I said, so we, we paired up and we formed a company and we went through like eight iterations of this charging handle until um, sometimes you have to look at things differently. So uh, if anyone is listening has ever handled an AR, and I'm <laughs> sure most people have, if you look at the charging handle, the latch that keeps the charging handle uh, you know, latched onto the upper receiver is a 90-degree angle because that's the mill spec for it, which was written back in 1950, whatever it was, when the first armor light was made. So it has to have a positive locking uh, mechanism. Well, the only way you can positively lock then is with this 90 degree angle, so you have to pull it with the spring and pull it back. It's like, well, I did have the advantage of having 280 degrees. It's like, is that really true? Well, to solve the arm it is, but there's other ways to solve that. So we came up with a new design for a charging handle. It basically curves that piece, and we put a stronger spring in there, and then we've got another piece where instead of using your small motor movements on your fingers, and that's really hard to do when you Arctic, when you have your glove and your fingers out, or bloody or muddy or something else so it racks like a pistol automatically ambidextrous no paddle sticking out it's like let's kind of like do a that. grip yeah, kind, of, kind of like, like a grip yeah. so now it takes eh, some rounds getting used to it because everybody in their head who's ever fired an arrow is so used to this or if you're left-handed doing right yep but it's so much easier so we've uh we've uh, we've got two patents on it i've sold thousands of them um, can I plug the name of it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, the, the, if you yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I want to go beyond my bounds. <laughs> no. Here, but, uh, uh, the name of the company is Falcon Three Seven. It's a call sign. Yeah. We, we had a discussion on that. My partner and I. Uh, he always liked Falcon. I, I always like Grunt Six. So, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Falcon like, almost sounds like a pilot. You uh, know, yeah. Uh, well, it does. Yeah. But, yeah. He's a marine, so I can't explain his thought process. <laughs> but or he was a marine until he got in the air. So Falcon Three Seven. Okay. Uh, that's. Uh, dot com and you can go and take a look at it it's for sale and uh, it's just you know buy one of ours throw the old one out put a new one in yeah and it has an advantage gives you a little bit better cheek weld too because it sticks back a couple inches so you can get a better cheek weld uh, works out with virtually every type of ar there's only one a couple of the stocks that won't if they have a real uh, they're like uh, triangles like pyramids on yep. there it, yep. it, it gets hooked up on that but with the exception of those few stocks uh, i never did like those anyway i found them too bulky i like mm-hmm. prefer anyway but matter of perf- uh, personal preference so well, we're along, doing that along uh, the lines of matter of personal preference i mean what you're describing too i mean we had a soft guy here that was talking oh, yeah. about you know the problem of hooking it to his gear and you know the the current getting caught and yeah. challenges and stuff and he with had a it. paddle one and he said yeah oh, man this is awesome so it was like he's selling me my products like this is good <laughs> I, I, you know, this is really good so, so falcon37.com that's it falcon37.com okay. and they can go out there and take a look at it. i definitely encourage yeah. people to go out and take a look at it because it's a very cool setup <laughs> And and sometimes you you look at these types of things and you go, geez, why can't I thought of that? And again, you know, it goes back to that entrepreneur. You want to find what sets you apart. And at times, everybody's had great ideas, but this is really a great idea that well, I don't understand. Uh, Nobody's come up with this. Well, you know? because you got locked into, you can't sell it to the government because mm. it didn't ha- it didn't meet the mill spec because it had to have this ninety degree bend. Yeah. Whereas we rounded it off, put a stronger string in there, and actually, we've had tests. It takes more force 
physical force to do this, but it seems so much easier because you're using your major muscles yeah. as opposed to using yeah. you know, your index finger and your middle finger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's got a lot of advantages. So. Yeah, absolutely. I hope people go out there and check it out. I hope uh, they do, too. Yeah, I bet you it's do. It's got a lifetime <laughs> warranty. If you break one, you can send it back to us, and we'll uh, we'll replace it. It's all completely American-made, too, I might add. So. Yeah, and uh, what, what was the um, the design of it and everything as far as the uh, quality? So maybe you can tell a little oh, bit the about quality, that. Well, the, the aluminum part is the same quality as, I mean, that does meet mil-spec quality, and then the plastic part, uh, we make that out of the same polymers that Glock uses for their pistols. Yeah. So I've, when we decided to do it, we weren't going to go halfway on it we want a good quality stuff because we're good quality americans and i'm not going to sell junk so mm -hmm. no um, i wanted you to bring that up yeah. because i think that when people are looking at it um they may go out and check it out but the fact that they listen to it and understand what it's made of and stuff they may uh, yeah. take a bigger interest in understanding the, the good quality that you guys put into well, it, it. And we've, we've got the three gunners like it we've had some swat teams from major cities across the united states buy it because it's just it's just easier if you've got a if you have to charge a weapon for whatever reason, it's just so much easier. Yeah. You know, and, and it's not just that. <laughs> kind of, you know, you're kind of doing this with, you don't have, of course, not with a microphone in the way, <laughs> but like this, instead of getting your hand and arms in these weird positions or taking the muzzle, not pointed directly at the target, but, you know, pointing down at the ground to do all this other jazz with the with the conventional uh, charging, charging handles. Yeah. So. Anyway, I like it. Obviously, I have a little bit of uh, uh, prejudice towards it since I helped invent it. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome. I hope people go out and check it out. Um, if they happen to be in the North Carolina area, how can they find out about your mortgage company? Well, let's go ahead and tell them about okay. that as well. It's uh, I work for a company called Certainty Home Loans. Okay. It's a regional lender. We've got branches from Colorado to Virginia to Florida and most states in between. Um I'm in Fayetteville, the Certainty Home Loans branch. Uh, you can always go to certaintyhomeloans.com, uh, find the closest um, branch to you. Um, we do great work. Uh, there's a lot of good mortgage companies out there, but if you're in the greater Fayetteville area, I'd appreciate you giving me a holler. Yeah, so this is refi as well as initial, oh, right? Oh, it's purchase, yeah. it, mainly purchase and refi. The, the refi market happens when you've got uh, falling rates when mm. rates are uh, rising the only people who are really refinancing are sad to say people are getting divorced and they have to refinance the house to release you know pay off one spouse really i uh, I, yeah. I didn't think that was primarily the reason that you see a well, lot more of your business and well i'm not it's not but it is some i'm saying when rates are going up yeah on refis and then cash out refinances with the uh, inflation is hit housing prices too so there are some yeah. folks who See an opportunity now to do some home improvements and refinancing, getting some cash out. Um, it depends what the rate is now, whether I'd either rec even recommend that or not. Though. Yeah. No, I, I may talk to you offline about that because, <laughs> you know, you end up getting a 30-year mortgage and then you wonder should you had gone 15. Uh, and re yeah, you know, well, I can do that offline because I'm also licensed in Virginia, Georgia, and oh, uh, South Carolina. There so. you go, Georgia. There you go. I heard my state. Um, John, I really appreciate you coming here all this way to share your knowledge and everything and your story and stuff, and specifically around some of the stuff that we both experienced crossing some yeah. of the same paths, maybe at the same, not at the exact same time frame, but it's very interesting 
And, and certainly sharing your perspective about what it was between, say, that era and today, which I think we both find some similarities of what we're experiencing well, or seeing. I appreciate you having me here, and hopefully our uh, musings here have been useful to the listeners. Yeah, I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Right, thank you. Yeah, man. Yeah.